Well, I am very glad that all of you are here this morning to hear me preach this first message, but I do have to be honest with you, it is definitely adding to how nervous I am to preach it. (laughs) But I'm very glad you're here. You can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Now, before we get into our scripture text this morning, I want you to picture something in your mind that you think is unstoppable. Something that you think is unstoppable. Now, perhaps that might look like a massive army conquering nation after nation, or a giant tsunami about to consume a city, or if you're like me, you might have thought of yourself when you're at a family reunion and a Spillers family reunion, and you have just laid eyes on the last piece of what your favorite dessert is, and it seems like somebody is about to get to it before you, and you say to yourself, there's no way that somebody's going to beat me to it. Now, whatever it is that came to your mind, does it look anything like a seed? And specifically, a mustard seed. I ask this question because in Mark 4, verses 26 through 32, we see Jesus comparing the growth of God's kingdom to the growth of seed. And specifically in the second parable, the growth of of a mustard seed. Why does Jesus use this parable, or this picture rather, to describe the kingdom? We wouldn't expect Jesus to describe the kingdom of God in this way. What could Jesus possibly be trying to reveal to us by revealing, teach us by revealing the kingdom of God in this way? Jesus shows us in the two parables we're about to look at that we can't think about the kingdom of God in human terms. He reminds us that God doesn't need our approval in the things that He does. This truth is all over the Bible, and it should not surprise us when we come to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God and what it is like. But there is also massive truths here for us to be reminded of, for the Christian to to think on. Truths that we can stand on in times of uncertainty, in times of doubt. Now, before I go any further, let's go to the Lord and pray and ask for His help as we look into these parables. My Father in heaven, I come before you as I stand before your people, as I stand to preach your word before them. And I ask that you would help me, because no matter what I have prepared in this message is enough. I can never have language that is eloquent enough to preach your Son and His glory. But I ask that you would use this to strengthen your people and to show them Christ. May your people be strengthened by what is taught here this morning. May may we be reminded of your kingdom and its coming and the glories that are there. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. So Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. And he said, and he, Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In this first parable, we have a picture of a farmer going out and scattering seed. Afterward, he goes to bed and he wakes up day after day while the seed sprouts and grows. Now, while this process is happening, the farmer is totally ignorant of how the seed actually grows. Jesus then goes on to show how the process happens on its own and in stages. It doesn't happen all at once. But then when the grain is ripe, the farmer goes out and puts in a sickle because the harvest is ready. So what is the point of this parable? Jesus is teaching us how the kingdom grows. The kingdom of God in condensed form, and I say condensed form because If I was to explain to you all of what the kingdom of God is, it would take many messages. So the kingdom of God in condensed form is what we had in the beginning when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. They were, and some of you may be familiar with this phrase, they were God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. When they rejected God as their king, they rejected God's kingdom. Now, this does not mean that God lost His kingdom. The Bible doesn't say that God is on a quest to regain His throne and His kingdom with it. That is not true. He always was and He still is king. So, if God never lost His kingship, and he never lost his kingdom, what's the problem? The problem is is that the kingdom of God was lost to us. The rest of the Bible then reveals God's plan to restore that kingdom to us. The kingdom of God is where the king is, where he is delighted in, and where his word is obeyed. And these are the things that were lost to us because these are the things that we rejected. This is exactly why Jesus came into the world. He came so that the kingdom could be restored to the hearts of sinners like you and me. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He defeated Satan and his kingdom of darkness over our hearts so that when we trust in Him, He comes and reigns over our hearts as king. Now, as Christians, we should be very encouraged by what this parable teaches. God is not depending on you for the growth 
of His kingdom. His kingdom will continue to conquer the hearts of sinners whether we are a part of this work or not. The fact that God uses us is because He wants to, not because He needs to. God uses us because He gets glory for it, not because He's lacking. When you and I go out and share the gospel with people, the weight of whether those people believe or not is not on us. We can't conquer anyone's hearts or change anyone's mind. Only God can do this great work. We are simply heralds of the kingdom that conquered our hearts and changed our lives. That's all we can do. The rest is in the hands of God. Now, I want you to look at the seed in our parable. It doesn't need any help by the farmer to grow. Jesus says that the farmer doesn't even know how it grows at the end of verse 27, but that the earth produces by itself, beginning of verse 28. Now, in the Greek language, those two words, by itself, would form the word automate, which is where we get our word, Automatically. I'm sure you can see the resemblance in those two words. Automate, automatically. So the earth produces automatically with no help from the farmer. In verse 28, Jesus continues to show how the kingdom will come. He says it will come slowly, not all at once. Now in Jesus' day, the Jews thought that the kingdom would come with the Messiah all at once and in a powerful and glorious way, conquering their enemies. Jesus, however, doesn't teach this. He says that for the duration of our lives on earth, it will not be that way at all. In a lot of ways, the growth will be imperceptible. Because as far as kingdoms go, Jesus' kingdom won't even look like one to the world. To the world, it will not look like a kingdom. Now, I'm sure all of you are pretty familiar with the phrase, like watching the grass grow. Now, there's a reason why we refer, use the saying, like watching the grass grow, to refer to things that are slow. If it's not grabbing for our attention, most of the time we won't care what it is or what it's doing, because to us, it's boring. Why should I waste my time on something that doesn't appeal to me? It's like watching the grass grow. You know, the world says things like, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said He's coming back. They don't take it seriously. They say we're crazy to believe what the Bible teaches. Like what's taught in this parable. They think it's nonsense. Now, it's one thing for the world to think this way. That's to be expected of the world. But for us, for you and I, for believers to think this way is insane. Have you lost faith in the coming of God's kingdom because it's taken a long time and yet Jesus still hasn't shown up? The more time it takes... We struggle to trust God's Word and His faithfulness to us. Now, I want to say to you this morning, don't doubt the kingdom of God and its coming. It will come. 
and all the sin and adversity of our day can't stop it from coming. Nor can it stop its king. Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16, 18 that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It's a very familiar verse. And so it is with His kingdom. The gates of hell cannot overcome it. It will not overcome it. Are you waiting for Jesus to come and make all things new? Are you waiting for Him to come and to save all those who are waiting for it? I want to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. You could turn there if you like. You don't have to. But 2 Peter chapter 3. Now what Peter is talking about there is what we're talking about now. People are asking, where is God and what is He doing? Where is His kingdom at? What's taking so long? Now listen to how Peter responds. 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll read verse 4 first and then verses 8 through 10. So this is what the world says. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now this is Peter's response. Listen carefully. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now going back to our parable. Up to this point, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God will come in a slow manner. He says it comes slow in stages. But now when we get to verse 29, Jesus says at once. So why does Jesus shift His language? Jesus is showing that although the kingdom will come in a slow manner, the consummation will look very different. Verse 29 is a picture of the growth of God's kingdom at last completed. And the king himself coming to gather us, his people, and to dwell with us in his kingdom. But this is also a picture of the final judgment that is just as sure to come. You can't separate the two. When the king comes to save his people, he will also come to judge those who have rebelled against him. Now as we come to our second parable, Jesus' focus changes from the process of growth to its start compared to the end result. So we're going from the process of growth to its start and what it's going to look like whenever it's done, when it's completed. Verses 30 and 31. Jesus compares what the kingdom of God will look like when it first starts out to a mustard seed. He emphasizes how small the seed is by saying it is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Verse 31. He is putting an emphasis on how small the kingdom will start out compared to what it will grow to and become. 
Again, like I was saying earlier, the Jews had a totally different perspective on how the kingdom would be inaugurated by the Messiah. And I imagine at this point of Jesus' teaching, you know, hearing Jesus say that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, they're probably thinking, this guy is crazy. He's nuts. How can the kingdom of God be compared to a mustard seed? How can he say this? Now, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God will start out like a mustard seed, he means all of it will look mustard seedish at first. The size of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, and the king himself will all look mustard seedish. Now, from the Bible, we need to see how each of these appears mustard seedish at first, because that is a bold statement which I just made, especially that last part about the king himself looking like mustard seed. So let's consider first the size of the kingdom. Now, this is probably the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of how the kingdom of God will start out like a mustard seed. We think of its size, you know, the small numbers. The followers Jesus leaves behind are not impressive in any way whatsoever. Compared to the world around them, they are very insignificant and small in number. Jesus promised that the kingdom would grow in an unprecedented way. And at its start, it's questionable that it will even take root, much less grow in this powerful way. Next, the citizens of the kingdom. Not only the kingdom's size, but its citizens themselves are like a mustard seed. For example, I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now finally, the king himself. Now, this is by far the most surprising part of how the kingdom of God will come in a small and unexpected and insignificant and humble way. It's that the king of glory himself chooses to be made low for his kingdom. For he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's from Isaiah 53. 
The kingdom of God is like no other. Now, as Jesus says in verse 32 of our passage, this is not the end. This is only the beginning. The end result that is coming will look very different. It's like the mustard seed in verse 32. When it's sown on the ground, then becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In this verse, Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of God will not be limited to the Jews only. He is promising that the kingdom of God will be extended to all peoples in all the world. It will be a refuge for everyone. God's grace and mercy is extended to all. It has no limits and it knows no bounds. All can receive the gift of God's kingdom. No matter how you've sinned against it, the King Himself stands ready to receive all who seek after Him. Now, for the last good while, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We've looked at its small beginning. We've looked at its unexpected, but its glorious end. And I want to ask you, because this is a very important question, are you seeking the kingdom of God? Are you seeking this kingdom that we're talking about? And do you long for King Jesus to come and make all things new? Or do you find this kingdom and its king to be easily overlooked? Or maybe you just don't care. You don't see a reason why I should be seeking the kingdom of God. You're happy with the way things are. You don't want them to change. Now, that's what my answer was whenever I was in my teenage years, until I turned 18 anyways. That's what my answer was to this question. You know, I don't care. Why should I seek the kingdom of God? I'm happy with how I'm living now. In fact, I was happy of be- in being my own king and the sin that ruled over me. Because that's how it really works. The sin itself is what is king. You may think that you're king of your own life. You think, you may think that, you know, you can control your sin, that you can kind of treat it as like a pet, you know, walking on its leash, just use it or take part in it when you want to. But it's really killing you. And if you let it, if you let your sin go unchecked for the entirety of your life, it will drag you all the way to hell. It will. It will drag you all the way to hell. Now, things changed in my life. They did. But before then, I was, I was completely happy with the way things are in the world. And I didn't want Jesus to come in and change it. But God broke in anyway, and He showed me who the real King was. He showed me Jesus. He opened my eyes to see Jesus. And I began to see just how broken this world really is. And to see just how ugly sin really is. 
I began to see that He is far better than anything the world can even begin to offer. I began to see, and I still am seeing every day, more and more every day, it's a process, that He truly is glorious and worth giving up everything to follow after Him. If your answer is similar to the one I just described, to the one that I just gave, I want you to know that all is not lost. You can still come into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ the King has taken the penalty, the punishment that you and I deserve, which is the wrath of God. Because of what He has done, all those who put their faith, all those who put their trust in Him will dwell with Him in His kingdom for all eternity. Now, before I close this message, there are many people when faced with the truth of God's kingdom and its coming that think to themselves, you know, I know who Jesus is and I respect Him. And I think His kingdom is really great. But I don't want Him now. I don't want Him now. If that's you this morning and you don't want Jesus today, I want to ask you, what makes you think you'll want Him tomorrow? Or the day after that? Or for the rest of your life? What makes Jesus look glorious isn't going to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not going to change. The same Jesus that I'm putting before you this morning, the same Jesus that you are considering, will be the same Jesus that you consider for the rest of your life. Now, I want to add something to that. I don't have it in my notes, but I can picture someone saying to themselves, you know, what will make me change, what will make me consider Jesus, what will make me cry out to Him is whenever I get ready to die. You know, when death comes knocking on my door, then I'll cry out to Jesus. But somebody that thinks that way, they don't really want Jesus. They just want what He can do for them. And, you know, there were people like this in Jesus' ministry. You can see that when Jesus is healing the sick, when He's healing the blind, when He's casting out demons, when He's feeding people, there are a lot of people following Jesus. There are a lot of people there. But as soon as Jesus says something that they don't want to hear, they're gone. They say, we'll see you later, Jesus because they were just concerned with His gifts. Only what He could do for them. Don't, don't be like that. You know, what makes heaven heaven is not what you get out of it. It's who's there. Because Christ is there. That's what makes heaven glorious. The rest is just like the cherry on top. Christ is there. That is why the Christian can go through this life, suffer what they suffer, see what they see, 
be condemned the way they get condemned, get persecuted the way they get persecuted, and yet they say as Paul does, I count it all as lost because I get to know Christ. And I get to spend all eternity with Him. When you use Jesus as a means to an end, you don't want Jesus. You're just using Him as a doorway to get to something else. And that's not the truth that the Bible puts before you to consider. Please don't be like that. Come to Jesus today. Come to Jesus while you can. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as this message ends and I ask that you would continue to be with us as we leave here and go out into our daily lives and we do have struggles. We, we go out and we share the gospel with people and it just bounces off of them like they've never even gave it a second thought. But Father, I pray that we would be reminded of the truths that we considered here today. That You're not depending on us. That we are just Your instruments. And that You can change anyone's heart. There is no one that is too hard. There is no one that is too sinful. And Father, for the person that may think of Your Son in the way that I just described them, I pray that You would change their minds, and show them just how glorious Christ really is. I thank you for your word, and I do ask that you continue to be with us as we go through each day. And as we go from here and we enjoy the fellowship of our brothers and sisters as we eat together. In Christ's name I pray, amen.